This is the Halo Construction and Real Assets Podcast. Firstly, a huge apology for the delay in publishing this podcast. But there has been a lot happening. Exciting times indeed. A new business venture, the Safety Case Partnership, which we will touch on in another podcast. Another big shout out to Ukraine Aid Ops. As previously noted, these people raise money to send bulletproof vests, among other things, to the troops on the front line in Ukraine. I've now received my handmade art, crafted out of part of a destroyed SU-34 fullback fighter bomber. I certainly don't want to glorify war. War sucks. But then, so does Putin. Slava Ukraini, heroiem Slava. Go check them out at ukraineaidops.org. Ouch! Who just got burnt in public by Michael Gove for not signing the post-Grenfell safety contract and accepting responsibility to fix facade defects in high-rise residential buildings? Of the 11 developer names on the list, two of them, quite frankly, I'm struggling with to understand why on earth they are on the list and can only consider that there's some administrative error going on there. We'll take a look at the new Responsible Actors Scheme, the so-called Scheme, later in the podcast. Now, let's take a quick look at what's been happening in building safety. So, let's jump right in with the Higher Risk Buildings Descriptions and Supplementary Provisions England Regulations 2023 and the Higher Risk Buildings Key Building Information Etc. England Regulations 2023. Oh, yeah. Firstly, the Higher Risk Buildings Descriptions and Supplementary Provisions England Regulations 2023, published on the 6th of March 2023, and which come into full force and effect just one month later, on the 6th of April. Yeah, they kind of sneaked that one out. But that comes into effect the week after next. Be aware. Yeah. Despite the blitzkrieg way in which this was issued, these regulations do little more than help building owners work out whether they have a building that is in the higher risks bracket or not. It finally confirms the definition of higher risk building. Probably the most noteworthy points are the exclusion of MOD housing, secure residential units, hospitals, care homes and hotels. From the definition of higher risk building, they all have their own regulations to deal with. Now, let's be clear, that does not mean that MOD housing is fantastic. In fact, a huge stock of MOD housing is a disgrace to our armed services. We know Ben Wallace is less than happy with the MOD lot here and often makes his feelings known to that effect on Twitter. I do like Ben Wallace. It's actually hard not to like Ben Wallace. Forget politics. The guy says and does what he says. Other noteworthy points. A basement is not counted as a story. Pretty obvious, really, but there you go. A rooftop plant room that is just a rooftop plant room is not counted as a story. Okay. And any story consisting of a gallery with an internal floor area that is less than 50% of the internal floor area of the largest story vertically above or below it, and which is not below ground level, is also not a story. So, 
a double-storey atrium may not be counted as two storeys dependent on how you measure it. Cool. Interesting. Maybe not, but there you go. Next, let's take a peek at the higher risk buildings, key building information, etc. England Regulations 2023. Oh yes, that is what I want. Now our take on this regulation is that it very much pulls in the definition of key building information in part five of the now withdrawn, the high risk building England Regulations 2022, which previously only applied to newly constructed high risk buildings. And it pulls that into high-risk buildings registering after 6th of April 2023 and before the proposed deadline in October. That is a significant shift in our view from that previously proposed for existing occupied high-risk buildings, which appeared to just limit it to details of who the PAP was, the number of stories, number of dwellings, height, etc. Now it would appear that existing owners of high-risk buildings will need to know more about the use historic change of use, construction materials, structural relevance in approved code A, staircases, orientation, structure, energy supply, storage, fire plans, emergency planning, etc. A logical step. And one we certainly support as in reality, this is basic building information. However, our experience in the immediate aftermath of Grenfell in PBSA, that's purpose-built student accommodation, was that much of that information is either missing or inaccurate. So, we imagine that the change will have many of the existing owners of high-risk buildings concerned. So I imagine many investors will be asking those owners of high-risk buildings and the leaseholders whether they have enough data to satisfy the regulator from April this year or risk being unable to occupy or face potential criminal prosecution. Whilst we are at it, let's review the UK government's formal response to last year's consultation process on the registration and review of decisions provisions of the Building Safety Act 2022, which was recently released. A few of the outcomes are the legal duty to register a high-risk building remains with the principal accountable person, the PAP. Managing agents or an agent are enabled to assist the principal accountable person in registering the building. The PAP, principal accountable person, remains legally responsible for the accuracy, completeness and truthfulness of the building information submitted during registration. UK government recommends that the PAP carries out its own due diligence on the registration data if provided by the managing agent or agent. They've therefore reversed the previous suggestion that the managing agent or agent is responsible for the accuracy and truthfulness of the registration data. It's all on the PAP's head, as it should be. The PAP remains ultimately accountable for meeting the requirements of the Building Safety Act 2022 and UK government intends that the clear lines of accountability and responsibility for meeting the duty to apply for registration is not, not passed to the agent. If a managing agent or agent does apply for registration on behalf of the PAP, 
then the agent's details must also be submitted at the time of registration and it is again for the PAP to ensure that this information is true and accurate. The PAP needs to submit its name and address as part of the registration process and if the PAP is not an individual, then an individual, okay, so an individual is to be nominated and their name and address is to be submitted as part of the registration process. That's clear, isn't it? It's an individual, people. Somebody. A person. So the nominated PAP individual is required on application to register to issue a statement that the information submitted is to the best of the applicants, that's the individual, the person, is truthful and accurate. This is to ensure that the regulator can pursue the individual. However, if that statement is not provided, then the UK Gov is to ensure that the nominated PAT individual, that's an individual person, a person, the principal accountable person, can still be pursued by the regulator. So it appears that the statement the PAP has to provide at registration is just belt and braces. The individual person is accountable. In the year of completion of an existing building is not known, then the registration process must identify an age range from a list of age ranges provided by the regulator. Don't know what they are, but they're going to be provided shortly. And the key building information, as previously shared, needs to be uploaded to the regulator within 28 days of an application to register. So here's the issue. It's a two-stage process. You make an application to register with some base information. You then have to upload more detailed information within 28 days. The PAP is responsible for notifying the regulator of any changes to the registration information within 14 days of the PAP becoming aware of the change. A managing agent or agent can be used, but again, it's for the PAP. This is the individual PAP, a person, to ensure that that change information is accurate and truthful. Now, if an appeal against the decision of regulator is made, then the PAP must appeal within 21 days of a decision by the regulator. That's kind of standard fare in construction. We all know that. And the regulator must review that appeal within 28 days of receipt of the appeal notice. But what does that review mean? Hey, I've received it. I've looked at it. Get back to you sometime. So, can we please go over this one more time? A principal accountable person is that person within a relevant company or organization who has ultimate responsibility for the safety of residents. And they should have the authority with which to ensure that safety of residents. Therefore, they should have budgetary and strategic control to do so. So here is the question we always get asked. Can you advertise and employ a principal accountable person? Yes, if you want to, but you probably have one already. They are probably called 
the Chief Executive Officer. Yes, you are free and able to advertise for a principal accountable person if you want to in order for them to accept your criminal liability for resident safety. Not going to happen, really, is it? In fact, drop me a line. I will take that job. My fee will be £100 million a year, excluding bonuses. Simple. Drop me a line. I'm here. I'm waiting. Hello, Gringo. Guess I'll finish this here chewy Texan bar. Poor favor. Bite through the chocolate and chew real slow. Everybody knows the Texan takes time to chew. Could you boys come back next week? Texan sure is a mighty chew. Now, on this day in the year of our Lord 2023, UK government slipped out the Responsible Actors Scheme, the so-called Scheme, under the Building Safety Act 2022. Mm, That was a bit sneaky. The scheme aims to improve the safety and standard of buildings by inviting developers to sign up to the scheme and requiring them to identify any residential building over 11 meters high that they have developed or refurbished over the past 30 years and any of those buildings known to have life critical fire safety defects it's on the developers to make that information truthful and accurate it's on the developers to identify if any of the buildings they've developed or refurbished in the past 30 years if they have life safety issues. Nice. They must also remediate and or mitigate or pay for the remediation and or mitigation of life critical fire safety defects in those buildings. So all the chatter about this is going to be at an end. Developers have been warned. They must also, if the government schemes are in play to actually remediate or rectify those defects, they must refund the government. Now, UK government have notified everybody through the scheme that they intend to incentivize developers to sign up and adhere by the scheme in the following ways. If you are a developer and do not sign up to the scheme once invited to by the government, and I can just imagine that invitation landing on the doorstep of many CEOs around the country, or having signed up you do not adhere to the requirements of the scheme, then you will be prohibited from carrying out major developments in England, and a major development includes schemes providing 10 or more residential units, or residential schemes on a site of at least 0.5 of a hectare, or commercial developments creating at least 1,000 square meters of floor space, or any development on a site over one hectare in size. And you will also be prohibited from submitting plans, making applications, and gaining building control approval to start or finish work, save where that work is necessary to secure resident safety. And that's in respect of any building work that requires such approval. This may result in you having to suspend or terminate existing building contracts. So, 
The big stick has been laid out for those developers who are in the game of not doing the right thing. Now, in the last podcast, we did a deep dive into the origins of the sprinkler system, and we have been more than a little taken back by the reaction to this, uh, positive reaction that is, and the request to take a deep dive look into the origins of other contraptions of interest. Now, don't know about you, but I love escalators. As I just adore them. I get love getting on them. I'm like a big kid. I love jumping off them. I love, you know, the way they actually move. I just think it's fantastic. So there I was in Blue Water Shopping Centre the other day with my children, and they were a bit nervous about getting on and off the escalators. And I thought, where the hell did escalators come from? So here we are. This is about the origin of the escalator. Back on the 9th of August 1859, just a few years before the start of the American Civil War, Nathan Ames, a Harvard graduate and writer working as a patent solicitor in Saugus, Massachusetts, USA, registered the patent for the world's first escalator for his steam-driven revolving stirs. That's patent number 25,076. But the idea did not move beyond the initial early patent design stage as, without sufficient funding to pursue the project, possibly as investment capital had been dried up and redirected to the war, it didn't progress. In despair, poor Nathan climbed aboard the Stairway to Heaven a few years later in 1865 at just 39 years of age. Out of interest, Nathan's patent papers state The nature of my invention consists in arranging steps or stairs upon an inclined endless belt, chains or ropes, or in attaching the stairs or steps together by links or joints so as to form an endless inclined flight of stairs or steps, which are placed on, over or around rollers, such that the stairs or steps shall serve as elevators when motion in transmission to the rollers. Finally, before Nathan shuffled off his mortal coil, he also went on to patent the polygraph. An interesting man. 24 years after Nathan's demise, Lemon G. Souder patented the Stairway in 1889 in Philadelphia, patent number 625,905. But again, this remained unbuilt by Souder. Then in 1891, A 30-year-old employee of Thomas Edison, named Jesse Wilford Reno, the son of the deceased Civil War hero General Jesse Lee Reno, who was the apparent epitome of a soldier's soldier, but who in reality was shot by his own men at the Battle of South Mountain in 1862. Anyway, Jesse Reno drew up plans for an electric-powered stairway, which was registered as a patent. Patent number 673,890. On March the 15th, 1892, the same year that his previous employer, Thomas Edison, founded a little company that went on to be called General Electric. It is said that Reno's idea for the electric-powered stairway came when he had studied at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is built on a hill and which had 300 stairs that you needed to climb the 100 metres from the lowest point on the campus to the highest point on the campus. And Reno's lectures were at the lowest point on the campus and his frat house was on the top of the campus. 
The idea for Reno's inclined elevator was originally part of his proposal to build an underground New York City subway. Whilst the subway proposal was rejected, the inclined elevator caught on. It included a rubber-coated moving handrail and a comb of projected fingers at the ends to help prevent feet from getting caught in the mechanism. However, unfortunately, the steps themselves sloped at a 25-degree angle, making it a little painful and forcing people to stand sideways with one foot on a higher step than the other. That little faux pas aside, the first of Reno's electric inclined elevators was demonstrated at Coney Island, New York in 1895 and transported some 75,000 people during its two-week stay there as a novelty attraction. It was then moved to the Manhattan entrance of the Brooklyn Bridge. The elevator had arrived as a fairground attraction. Hell yeah! A few years later in 1893 at the Chicago's World's Fair, the Movable Sideway Company exhibited their movable sidewalk. This comprised of a moving track running at a speed of about 180 feet per minute, which ran parallel with a second track running at twice that speed and including seating. Passengers could get on and off and change tracks by a combination of a simple sideway step whilst holding onto mounted poles. Unfortunately, in January 1894, a year later, it was destroyed in a fire. Then, at the Paris Exposition Universelle, in 1900, a 2.1-mile-long copy of the movable sidewalk was installed, which so impressed the visiting inventor Thomas Edison, yeah, he turns out again, that he made a movie of it, which was one of the first movies ever made. And it can still be seen on YouTube, so go and take a look at YouTube. In 1901, Jesse Reno sold on the patents to his elevator to John George Wainwright, who combined them with patents for a spiral staircase obtained from William Henry Aston of the film of Messrs. G. Aston and Son, Engineers and Iron Founders, and in the process they formed the Reno Electric Stairways and Conveyors Limited Company in London, England on the 10th of April 1902. Britain. Great. The British company went on to install electric conveyor belts and stairways across the world from Liverpool, England to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Raw Britannia. Meanwhile, the Otis Elevator Company had been formed in 1853 by Elisha Graves Otis in Yonkers, New York. That same year, he successfully demonstrated his new invention, the safety elevator, which automatically comes to a halt if the hoisting rope breaks, and that was demonstrated at New York's World Fair. At the age of 49, however, Elisha sadly contracted diphtheria and died on the 8th of April 1861. But his two sons, Charles and Norton, formed a partnership and continued the business. Then in 1864, with the partnership of J.M. Alvoid, the company became known as Otis Brothers and Company, going on later to form the Otis Elevator Company in 1898. 
In 1899, the Otis Elevator Company purchased the patent of a flat-stepped moving staircase, which was called an escalator, from Charles Seeberger, who had himself purchased the patent for the invention from George A. Wheeler in 1892. That's patent number 479,864. Now, Reno Electric Stairways and Conveyors Limited Company of Great Britain, Rule Britannia. was purchased by the Otis Elevator Company in 1911. In the 1920s, Otis engineer David Lindquist led a team that redesigned completely the escalators, creating the cleated level steps of the modern escalator, which is in use globally today. But in 1950, US courts ruled the phrase, escalator could no longer be trademarked by Otis as a brand. So, in summary, Nathan Ames, invented the first steam-powered escalator in 1859, but it was never built. Jesse Wilford Reno invented the first electric-powered escalator in 1891, which was built in 1895, but it had dodgy inclining steps. Ouch! George A. Wheeler resolved the dodgy step issue in 1892, and Charles Seeberger coined the phrase escalator in 1897. Otis, having brought Reno's business, began to mass market the Escalator product in 1902. Right then, time out, I'm out of here. And remember, being compliant is the minimum standards of acceptability and we can all do better much much better this is your host peter bow signing off the halo limited be safe and let's make life simple not complex <laughs> <laughs>